I'm your host, Lindsay Schultz, founder of Feed Your Can, a lifestyle brand that empowers people with food allergies to live fully. You'll learn life hacks and mind snacks so you can thrive each day. You may need to restrict foods, but never the fun. Our kids navigate eight categories of food allergies altogether. We're learning every day. We refuse to let fear hold us back from living life. We welcome you to feed your can, even when some foods you just can't. You know those people in your life that seem to come out of nowhere, and they show up right at the exact moment that you're going through something so tough. Somehow they just seem to have the knowledge, the wisdom, and just the calm to help you through the storm. That's Sue. She happened to live in my neighborhood. I had no idea that she had such a treasure trove of wisdom on food allergies. But let me explain a little more. Sue Itell Stack has her doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Rochester. She has done clinical work with kids, teens, and families. However, once she started a family of her own, she realized she needed to pivot because her two oldest sons were diagnosed with multiple severe food allergies. And one of her sons also has diabetes. While her kids were young, Sue spent most of her free time volunteering with the kids' schools to ensure safety and inclusion despite their medical conditions. Sue's sons are now in the various stages of adulting, and her oldest lives in Brooklyn, New York, for his first real job. The middle one lives in Boston, and he's finishing up college. And Sue's youngest is in the first year of college in Michigan. As her sons have moved out of the house, Sue's now turning her focus towards sharing a book that she recently wrote, where she compiles what she's learned raising her sons through the various stages of leaving home and living on their own with multiple severe food allergies. Her book, Adulting with Food Allergies, is available in paperback and Kindle on Amazon. Sue, tell us a little bit about your family. Let the listeners understand your food allergy journey since your boys are now adults. So my husband and I have three sons who are now 22, 20, and 18 years old. The two oldest have multiple food allergies. My oldest was diagnosed when he was 18 months old after he ate a bite of peanut butter that I gave him, and he broke out in hives. We called my pediatrician, and they said to give him Benadryl, and luckily that cleared up the hives. So they didn't set up a follow-up appointment or request that we get an EpiPen prescription, nothing. I made an appointment anyway with my pediatrician and he examined my son and said the treatment plan was to just not feed him nuts. So I was basically thrust into self-advocacy immediately because I was not comfortable with that decision. And I said, well, then why do people have reactions if you just don't eat nuts? And he's like, well, it's fine. So I wanted an EpiPen prescription. He said, you don't need one. Just don't eat nuts. So I had to argue with him about that. And eventually he did agree to call an allergist and ask him if I was right. To his credit, he did call me the next day and said, I was right, sent me referral to an allergist and gave me the EpiPen. Going forward, I was already in this mode of, okay, we need to work hard to keep our kids safe. Even the doctor doesn't know what to do, right? Over time, he was diagnosed with peanut, tree nut, soy, legume, fish, mustard, and sesame allergies. My second son was born a year later, and despite the prevailing medical opinion to avoid allergens, Until age one, he's allergic to many of the same allergens as my older son, plus egg and dairy. And my youngest son has no food allergies, amazingly. Fast forward 20-something years, at this point in our food journey, we have changed from being primarily in charge of allergy management to simply supporting our children from a distance 
reminding them to go shopping for food because you can't just pick something up at the corner. You have to have groceries. My oldest is working full-time in Brooklyn and my middle son is attending college in Boston. And the good news is they're both doing great away from home, but that was the motivation for writing the book. Awesome. Before food allergies were even on your radar, what was your experience in understanding food allergies? You know, I must have had some experience with food allergies because I knew we needed an EpiPen. But my only real knowledge of someone with food allergies was a friend of mine in graduate school who had peanut allergy. I knew she needed to avoid nuts. She was actually never prescribed an EpiPen, though. To this day, actually still doesn't have an EpiPen because she says she just doesn't need it. Other than that, my husband and I have zero experience with allergies. Yeah. How about for your son who doesn't have food allergies? I know this changes the dynamic quite a bit. We have one child who has only one, we say, food allergy. Right. I know. It's so simple. <laughs> I know. I always say everyone has something. So everyone might not have a food allergy, but everyone is dealing with something. It might be reading difficulties. It might be a different health issue, a psychological problems, family stress. So everyone's got something. So that's kind of my motto. It really hasn't been that big of a deal. Uh, we do keep allergens in the home, except for nuts. We have a nut-free home, but because of different dietary needs, my one son does have type one diabetes as well. So we have to limit carbs. So we will cook with egg and dairy for him. We have a color-coded dish system in the kitchen. All utensils, dishes, cups are color-coded, and everyone's been taught to use that forever. I will say my youngest son is a great friend to have if you have food allergies, because he's completely trained and aware of every food allergy. If you're looking for a good friend, look for someone with a sibling with a food allergy. (laughs) Nothing teaches you empathy like living with food allergies, right? (laughs) Yeah. And we say that too. Everyone has their thing. That's our mantra in our house as well. Yeah. Sometimes you see the struggle, sometimes you can't, but everyone's exactly. something, right? Yes, yes. How did you learn to navigate food allergies when you had so few options available? When awareness was super low, options were sparse, the stores didn't have these sections of right. grocery options. That overwhelms me even saying that because we are living in a different time and even the number of kids, it seems, were lower with food allergies. I really didn't know other people with food allergies, except like I said, my one graduate school friend. I was a little overwhelmed. I decided to stay home. I did not return to work as I was considering doing. I cooked everything for myself. We didn't go out to eat. I brought food when we went to relatives' houses. You know, I tried to educate my family about allergen residue. And luckily, my family is very receptive. I know some families do not have that experience. I did go to a couple of conferences. Fair had a conference. Back then it was fan. I got basic information. But other than that, I just went on my own reading. And I spent a lot of time working with safety at the school and how to include him and just basically tried to manage the world around my son. I do remember going to the library. That was an issue. Like, is this safe? I guess I was on one Facebook group at one point because they were discussing, can I even take my kid to the library? Because books are shared. It's amazing how many places in your life food allergies interfere, or you have to think about it. Yeah. And you could have your plan all figured out with 20 checklists and then miss something because real life happens like a play date where the dog eats a peanut butter treat and you thought to tell the parents, wipe down the counters, but you forgot, oh, wait, the dog. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How could we miss that? But how could we know that? 
fast forward to today, your two sons who are living with food allergies are living in New York and Boston, some of the most vibrant cities in the U.S., and they flew the nest successfully. Even though we might feel that urge to keep our kids in a bubble, I think what you do so beautifully is you make those transitional steps. Perhaps you feel like you were stumbling along in the beginning, but then when you reflect back and look at the skills you've learned, you clearly were successful at every stage, Mm -hmm. even with no roadmap. Now there are a lot of people to learn from. What do you think as you reflect back, are some of those values you reinforced with your sons early on so that they would navigate food allergies independently? First, your kids will get there even if it's impossible to see that now. You will worry along the way while you're encouraging your kids to do these things, but they will get there. That's the important thing to remember as you're stumbling, as I did. Of course, number one, never leave the house without your EpiPen. Know how to use your EpiPen. This is a non-negotiable rule in our house. If you don't have your EpiPen, we're showing up or we're making you come home. I would also say you want to think long-term as we're talking about transitioning your kids. So you might not care right now at age seven, if your kid can go to a restaurant, but in 10 years, your child will want to go out with their friends. They'll want to go on a date. They'll go to work meetings at restaurants. So you will need to know how they can do that safely. So the long-term plan needs to be one of independence and participation. So even if they never want to eat at the restaurant, there will be times they will have to probably be in a restaurant. So how do they do that safely? You know, you think about it, young adults, they do go to restaurants, they do go to bars, they go to parties. So the goal is to prepare them to be ready. There's a lot of different personalities with teenagers. They're trying to find their own identity along the way. And some people are more vocal and comfortable speaking up. And some people are shy and just trying to find their footing. And it's just not their nature to speak up because I can't imagine they have the exact same personality. How did you help them find their voice? I would say number one was to know my children's personalities. I have one son who's very comfortable saying he has diabetes and he looks different sometimes because he's got all his gear. And one time he was at the high school doing gym class where they have to swim and he's got a big sensor on his side. And the kids are like, what is that for? What are you, what are you wearing? What is that weird thing? And he was just like, oh, it's like an Apple watch for, for my blood sugar. You know, he's just very casual and that's his personality. He just rolls with it and makes it all normal. My other son was very, very shy and introverted. My biggest fear was he would have a reaction and would freeze and not say anything because he was just too shy or too scared. I really tried to focus on how to approach them differently. I started reading books. I read this book called The Hidden Gifts of the Introverted Child. And it was just such a great wake up call for me to really understand maybe what he was dealing with. I would make baby steps. Maybe he hands the chef card to the waiter, even if he's not speaking, so that he gets in the habit. He's interacting with this person, even if he's not doing vocals. Or, you know, go ask for a straw from the counter at Subway. Little baby steps to help them connect with other people who will eventually be people they need to talk to. The other thing is to, of course, identify good friends. So you as a mom probably can tell when you say, my son has an allergy. The other mom says, oh, You maybe aren't going to be the one to connect with so well in that situation. But I remember so well, my son was in second grade and a woman came up to me and she said, my son's having a party. I'd love your son to come. What can I get him that's safe? And I was like, we're going to be great friends. And we still are to this day. 
just like you do that in the allergy world as the mom, you want to help your kids recognize it. Say, hey, it was great that Joe thought of asking you about the ingredients before he gave you the cookie. And you want to highlight those skills that kids have and encourage them to build relationships with those people. And I know I've talked to you about the friend light concept. My husband came up with this. There's a lot of people in the world and you're going to have fun with them in different ways, but they might not be your go-to allergy support group, but that doesn't mean you can't be friends with them, but you won't rely on them for safety and support. You might just have fun playing baseball with them. And that's the friend light. So it's great to have a bunch of friend lights, but you want to have those good, solid friends who are going to have your back as well. There's no better test to find a true friendship than dealing with food allergies. The blessing in disguise is that there's these character building moments where we can model empathy. We can model these social skills that we're trying to teach our kids. We get these cave people who we just have to chip away at their edges as babies, you know, me hungry, me thirsty, (laughs) and teach them how to socialize properly. But when you have all of these social events that involve food, it really does give you this opportunity to pause and model what you want to see and get that reciprocal response from other families and other kids. And then when you don't, it is a little bit of a flag to your point. And that's okay because life is full of experiences and you need to learn how to get along with all types of personalities in the world, right? And so those are skills too. These opportunities are how you present and respond to situations. So when I read that in your book, about understanding the difference between a friend and a friend light that really resonated because we're about there. Yes, yes. And one part of that I would say is that I do a lot of narrating. Like, you know, when your child is a baby and they're learning to talk, learning to, you know, do something, you narrate what you're doing. Oh, mommy's putting the cup away because we're done with that. I continue to narrate through their whole life, whether they're listening or not, as they hear you do things, they're going to pick it up. Oh, I'm just going to double check these ingredients before I put them in the cabinet. I'm going to call the zoo to see if we're allowed to bring bags and bring in our own food because they don't want to hear me teach them. But as you're talking and you're narrating what you're doing, they're picking these things up. So without directly teaching, because a lot of times kids are like, I got it, mom. I got it, mom. But as you're narrating, they're learning as well. That is one of those tips that resonates so strongly right now with where we're at, because we went from lecturing, don't forget this trying to make that intentional shift to questioning, but that's a leap. Do you have everything you need before you go to school? Well, what does that mean? That's pretty broad. And it's a nice transition in between those stages before they shut you down because you're (laughs) lecturing and they think that you don't trust their knowledge. 100%. Or they're just sick of you. Like, I got it, mom. I know, I know, I know. Like, I'm tired of hearing about it. And that gradual transition puts the power in their hands, which it seems like it's those baby steps that lead to independent management and ownership without adding additional pressure or new worries, which I really like. That's a good tip. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. The other thing is things will come up naturally, like they want to go to a slumber party or they want to go to a day-long sports tournament. As you're talking about transitioning responsibility, and instead of just planning it all, getting things together for them. You know, you can say, well, what do you want to do for lunch then? What's your plan for that? Even if they're saying, well, can you pack safe food for me? Can't you just put a bag together? At least you're teaching them that they need to plan. So, okay, I have to stop and actually 
plan for a minute before I walk out the door. It's not just all magically there. So even though you're doing it, you're involving them in the planning by showing them you need to plan. Yep. I wanted to shift gears and talk about your book. I took a lot of notes. I know I will be rereading it as it gets to be more age appropriate for our family in the teenage years. And I also plan on giving that book to Cameron. I'm really grateful for your work because, again, you didn't necessarily have someone ahead of you, but you're thinking of people behind you, like us. You talked about your motivation to write the book. I want to be clear. Do you see this book as a guide for caregivers and teenagers who are growing into independent adults? It definitely is for both. Kids can read it and fill out the questions and there's places to workbook activities and think about what they want to do, what they feel. But it's really great too for caregivers because then they can start to anticipate the things that they will face with their kids moving forward. What are things that they need to think about that maybe they hadn't thought about? And it's a great way to open conversation with your child when you read something like, oh, I just read this. What do you think you would do? Or what do you think about this situation? And it's a great book for promoting dialogue. And communication really is everything. I mean, at every stage Mm -hmm. of our life, it is especially an essential tool that we have to master whether or not we like it. And we talked about some people being shy and less comfortable with this skill, but I truly believe, and you have shown us how everybody can learn self-advocacy with specific tools, strategies, and help people find their voice. Talk to me about some of the tricky situations where you leave room for young adults to explore their own problem solving. What I'd like to do is think about how kids, as I said, are all different. And so they're going to have different approaches to solving problems. When you say to someone, well, you're going to need to self-advocate. You're 18 now. You're going to college. You need to talk to the dining hall. You know, you don't think about how scary that is to someone who isn't comfortable in that role. So I think you want to move it down to the next step. Number one, first step of self-advocacy is knowing what you need and knowing what decisions are best for yourself. So if you can't identify what you need or what you feel comfortable doing, then you're already going to have trouble with self-advocacy. So I like to move it back to the next level. What do you need? What are you comfortable with? And that's the stepping stone to self-advocacy. And when you're talking about taking it down a level to the specific need, can you share a variety of these themes that you cover in your book that will not only give people a heads up of all the different topics and situations that teens will grow into being comfortable navigating as adults, but the skills that you help guide specifically along the way to develop that proficiency? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about a wide range of things from communication to how to manage college independence, specific communication skills. I speak about in business where you give an elevator speech and communicate what's important to you in 30 seconds. I talk about social situations with roommates, cooking with food allergies, and eating in restaurants and alcohol use. All of those are common situations that people will experience as they're going into college and adulthood. And using the skills that we talked about earlier in the book to get there. Yeah. And since your boys went to different colleges, I think you do a really nice job of unpacking the specifics in that process, which tends to overwhelm parents the most. You know, in the early days, it's all keeping kids safe and learning the diagnosis and how to go to birthday parties safely. But later on, once they've gotten out of their comfort zone, 
maybe with some stumbling along the way, it's that extra leap into college that seems so overwhelming. I know when I read your book, I hung on that section for a long time. You just laid out so many different gems of connections to make with who, which stakeholders, and where that responsibility is with your child and where that responsibility comes in as a parent. So just covering all that ground, but not glossing over it, one of the best gifts that you give to readers. Thank you. That's great. I really also like how you laid out the workbook style approach. You were weaving throughout the book opportunities for reflection and specific problems people will face. Did you face those or are those just general ones you've come across in the community? So some of the situations are definitely ones that my kids were facing or I was worried my kids would be facing. And some of them I just created from what I was anticipating them to be having. I know alcohol is a big issue in college and my son was in college. And we actually got to the point, and again, my son has type one as well, but we actually spent a summer testing out different alcohols, which sounds crazy to most people, but we wanted him to know what was safe for him, both with the food allergies and his diabetes and how to manage that. We maybe took that and then turned it into questions. Going out on dates, how are you going to tell people you have allergies? How are you going to handle kissing people? Those were all real things that my kids dealt with. And they're going to continue to learn along the way. Is there anything else you want to highlight from your book? I think the big message really is that there are a lot of options. No one does the same thing in the exact same situation. Even my two kids, or you get five of their friends together, everyone is not going to act the same. So there's no one right answer. It's what works for you, what makes you comfortable. For example, like you're new in your dorm, you're on your floor, you're meeting people and someone says, hey, let's go around the corner and go eat at that diner. It's like a great opportunity to meet people, build relationships. So what do you do? Some people would say, no way, I'm not going. Some people would say, I have a food allergy, so I can't eat there. Some people would just say, oh, I can't eat today. I'm not hungry, but I'll go with you. There's so many different choices that you can handle that situation in. So don't feel like I'm doing it wrong. Feel like I'm doing what works for me. As long as you're keeping yourself safe, there's a million options. It takes pressure off of us too, because we think every decision we make has to be the right one. What you're saying is really a relief because the mistakes we could make are sometimes just opting out. Yes. There are ways that we can feed ourselves ahead of a social event and still show up for the relationships. Yeah. It's not about the food. You can always eat before you go. Like you said, my kids have gone to restaurants where they can't eat anything, but they want to be there for the social group. So they go and they have a drink and they get through the inevitable, oh, why aren't you eating? Which is the thing they hate the most. But you know, by the time you've done it 10 times, it's not a big deal. You just say, I don't want to eat or I'm not hungry. And they move on and they have a great time. I remember the first time my son did that, he was supposed to be meeting friends and they were all at a restaurant downtown. And again, I don't want to force him to do it. He did do it and he had a great time. But it's trying these experiences in a safe way and you can get through it and you'll have fun. Awesome. Thank you. And for the listeners, you can find Adulting with Food Allergies, Navigating Independence After Leaving Home by Dr. Susan Itell-Stack on Amazon. Thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share, subscribe, and leave a review. You can also visit feedyourcan.com to grab a freebie 
or subscribe to our newsletter. Remember, feed your can, because some foods you just can't.